Hello, this is Dr. Janina Jeff, and today we'll be mapping genetics and race on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Janina Jeff. Dr. Jeff is a senior bioinformatics scientist at Illumina, where she develops genomic pipelines used in population screening. Her academic research career has focused on population genetics, with an emphasis on mixed populations and genetic risk factors of common diseases. She is specifically interested in identifying genetic variants that explain disease disparities across populations. Dr. Jeff is also the host and executive producer of the award-winning show, In Those Genes, a podcast that links genetics, African-American identity, and Black culture. In 2020, Dr. Jeff was awarded American Society of Human Genetics Advocacy Award for her exceptional science communication and outreach. A gifted public speaker, Dr. Jeff's voice populates the internet with her insightful perspectives and electric energy. I was hanging on Dr. Jeff's every word, as I'm sure you will be, so let's dive in. Dr. Jeff, I'm so excited to speak with you. I love the In Those Genes podcast. I always learn so much and you deliver complex information with humor, realness, and even explicit language. So cool. So welcome <laughs> to the 15-Minute Matrix podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to be a guest on the show. Honored, honestly. Yeah, it's so exciting to explore this topic with you. And it's a big one, genetics and race. So given that race is a social construct, as a geneticist, can you ground us on the power of the genome to help us parse through fact and fiction when it comes to genetics and race? Yeah, I would say if it weren't for what we know about genetics and the genome, we wouldn't even been able to really solidify that race is actually something that was created and a social construct versus science. It actually was the genome that helped support that hypothesis. <laughs> and this really started back in the day where we had the transatlantic slave trade and there needed to be a reason to justify slavery or justify who should be slaves and who should not be slaves, right? And particularly the creators, this was during the Enlightenment period. And so the Enlightenment period was just this era of time when scientists were, European scientists were making sense of things. And putting meaning behind things. And you had these two camps, monogenous and polygenous. And the monogenous believed that 
we all descended from the same person. And so one of my favorite homeboys, Darwin, he was <laughs> one who was like, you know, actually we're not different species and we all did evolve from the same person. And Darwin came up to that conclusion really by very, 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 very early things that he was observing about genetics, right? And about what constitutes different species. And so this is all a genetic story, really. And genetics really explains so much of it. And so in these early findings, of course, if we think about monogeneism in this sense that everyone is descended from the same person and we are all the same species, then that would mean two people who, you know, what a polygenist would think are different species should not be able to mate and create offspring together, right? That's one of the classifications that we define as a species, that two unique species typically cannot make viable offspring. And so Darwin was the one who was kind of like showing and proving this. And there were others in his camp, but not too far away, were some of his other colleagues who were polygenists. And they believed, you know, that we are two different species. And these assumptions were made based off of the way we look, based off of differences in anthropometric traits, you know, that people were observing then and could not wrap their head around the fact that perhaps we're just different. But genetics is really what ties it all together, right? Because if we look at the genome, we're able to trace back generation after generation after generation. And eventually we get to the first modern day human who we call mama mitochondria. And we all are related to that modern day human. You know, now that we have genetic technology and all these other things that really solidified and proved that we all descended from one species. Therefore, we are not separate species or what people classify or use to define as race or what they were then using to define as race. So that kind of proved that people who look different are still a part of the same species. People who are in the same species could have a wide range of phenotypes and those phenotypes do not explain race. And so what they really explain, and you can look at this in the genome too, is our adaptation to our environments, right? And if we think about you know, like I say, if we're talking to a first grader or a second grader and I'm trying to tell them that race is not real, they're like, but but she is darker than she is and her hair is different than her hair. And, you know, they are looking at these things, you know, these phenotypes and are saying, well, if race isn't different, then why do all the people who we call Black look this way? And why do all the people who we call Asian look this way, right? And so genetics even explains that, right? That there were mutations in our genome that accumulated over time to adapt to our environments. And so one might ask, and people often say, well, if that's the case, then we should all be the same skin color, right? Like, why are we not all brown? Or you hear people casually say, in 50 years, we'll all be brown. Or 50 years, we'll all you know, look alike, right? But what really is happening, and the reason why that is likely not to be the case, is that our genomes now really don't have as much evolutionary pull to create these mutations in different environments. And we can thank technology for that. For example, one of the things in the African descendant populations have much more melanin, have darker skin, and that's to adapt to the environment. Most of these populations are near the equator. And this is not even just in Africa. You see this in any population that is near the equator where you see sun. But if we have shelter, if we have air conditioning, we're not exposed to the sun as much. Therefore, our genomes are like, okay, well, you know, no need to create new mutations or anything like that. We don't necessarily need to evolve as quickly as we did in the past where we had these like really drastic changes in our environment, especially if we're talking about human migration patterns. And I think another thing 
people have to understand is that this happened over several hundreds of thousands of years. This is not a quick process by any means, right? And so those are the things that explain why we look different, not this thing that we can strive as race. And we can explain all of this through the genome and, of course, understanding how the genome engages with the environment. Oh my gosh, so much right there. Like just so much that you gave us right there, Dr. Jeff, and I love it. And you use certain terms that I want to dive into. So when you say evolutionary pull, is this basically like the long-term effects of epigenetic factors? That's a good way of looking at it. I mostly mean like natural selection. Right, right. So going back to Darwinism a bit. Yeah, The thing about epigenetics is epigenetics is very dynamic. And yes, epigenetics does evolve in response to environmental changes and shifts, but this is usually something that's very temporal. And so this happens, let's say when you're hungry, right? Or let's say when you're time to go to sleep, you have different changes in your gene expression levels that's controlled by methylation of your genome. So if there's a lot of methylation, then you don't have high gene expression. If there is not a lot of methylation, you do. Methylation is driving the gene expression of certain genes at different time periods in response to the environment. Now, the thing that's tricky about epigenetics and trying to understand epigenetics from an inheritance perspective is that our gametes, our egg cells, for example, our oocytes, you know, these genomes are defined at birth, right? And so in order for this to go on to the next generation, you would need to see it. You would need to see these epigenetic changes in those gametes, right? And so if we're talking about something that's constantly evolving, you know, you hear people talk about epigenetics and we talk about famine and we talk about the Holocaust and there has yet to been a genetic study that talks about slavery, but I'm sure that that will happen soon. At least I hope it will. And if we're thinking about how do we measure this, how can we measure this over generation over generation? If we're saying that it's epigenetic and we know epigenetic switches happen, you know, they're happening now in our bodies, right? Like it's always constantly happening. There are epigenetic signatures that yes, we can find in our gametes, but like in general, some of these switches that I may experience in my lifetime are just happening, you know, in my body. They're not necessarily being descended to my offspring. And that's because the genomes of my oocytes are not changing over time. They're already defined at birth. The sperm, and this is kind of where the research is kind of focused, right? Like when we think about spermatocytes, like that is a little bit different, right? Because these are being produced constantly, right? These are not defined at birth. And so people who are studying epigenetics are kind of focusing on that. Like, okay, if there is an epigenetics thing that could be descended in different generations, perhaps that we can look over to the gametes in people who have spermatocytes, essentially. Epigenetic signatures that occur during that lifespan could possibly be descended. And so that would be a way to kind of look at this. And there are some other methods that I'm not talking about now, but this is something that's becoming increasingly important. And so when I think about what we're talking about in terms of race and skin color and things that people have used to define race, I don't really see it as epigenetic because these are more like permanent changes as a result to the environment, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And especially when we're talking about race, I guess the way I was seeing it is it's epigenetics is almost like a drop of sand in the ocean and the evolutionary pull is like the ocean floor. Like it's (laughs) how people, right, adapted over time to their environment for survival. 
So whether it's like I've heard you talk about the texture of the hair being able to protect the body from heat and also expel more heat, right? Like that's an evolutionary pull. Do I have that right? Like that would be adapting to the environment in a big ocean floor kind of way. (laughs) Yeah. And I love that analogy. That is a great way to think about it. And I'm saying evolutionary pull, but I guess, you know, to be more correct, this would be selective pressure. And so when people are asking, well, like, okay, what's happening now? Why are we not all evolving to the same hair texture? Or why are we not all changing skin color? There is no selective pressure for us to do that at this point, right? I mean, this is kind of a tangent and just a complete hypothesis and just follow, you know, crazy, wacky scientist brain here. One thing I am curious about is the field of neuroscience, right? Because I do feel like because of technology, the way that our brains work is shifting, our attention spans are shifting, those things are shifting. And I almost feel like, I mean, I don't know how much of a selective pressure this would be, but I would think that like in this generation, in our lifetime, in our 100 to 200 year span right now, I could see some really big, you know, selective pressure, focused mutations, all kind of like dedicated to neuroscience or in that field. That's my prediction. I don't know how true that is. Yeah. I mean, I have predictions about, you know, the way we eat and the toxins we're exposed to over time, over generations, the bacterial impacts, right? Like those are factors that, again, are they a drop of sand or are they going to mutate our whole bodies and our phenotype as well? I don't know, but like, I am curious. We're in a very unusual time in history with what we're exposed to. Yeah. To even make this an even easier explanation, I think SARS-CoV-2 is a great explanation of how, you know, you can see some of these mutations develop faster than you've expected. Back in March of 2020, all of the scientists who were working on a SARS-CoV-1 had all predicted that the mutation rate would be way slower than it was, right? But one thing that no one took into account, and I always joke and say, like, this is the first political interaction with the genome, right? We didn't take into account is that, hey, this virus is moving differently than other viruses because we're a transient population. We're constantly moving. And so even if we tried to quarantine the entire world, it would be very hard to isolate this, especially given how contagious it is. And so you see mutations accumulating way faster than anyone had expected. And so you see this huge shift in the mutation rate of SARS-CoV-2 that was, you know, much faster than scientists originally predicted based off of the genomes and what they saw with SARS-CoV-1. And so that's just like an example of how you can see a really rapid shift in selective pressure evolution, accumulation of mutations in a very short period of time. Of course, a virus mutation rate is not the same as a human rotation rate, but just an example of how those things can happen and to give people a perspective of like how these shifts happen and can happen quite quickly if needed. Right. So going back to Darwin and that sort of changing the thinking or blowing up the fiction that has evolved around genetics and race, did the Human Genome Project take that even further? Like what evolved in relation to our understanding of race as a result of mapping the human genome? 
Mm, that's a very interesting question. And I say that because I don't think a lot of geneticists really started to embrace the idea that race is not a part of the genome. And I mean this in a very nuanced way. So a lot of geneticists at that time, of course, you know, believe that we all descended from one species, like even back in the 70s, there weren't, at least to my knowledge, a lot of geneticists who were like, no, you know, for the most part, everybody was on the same page at this point, right? And then when you have the sequencing of the human genome in the early 2000s, it was very much so understood that we all descended from an individual. But what you and myself included, what a lot of us were still doing was using race, the word race, to define what we call genetic ancestry. So I would say it's very nuanced, but the terminology actually does in some ways reinforce this non-scientific idea that race is biology. If you look at genetics papers from that period up until probably around 2015, you see people very, very regularly use race to define different continental populations, like use the word race or ethnicity. And really what we should have been using and what we are kind of trending to now is that this is genetic ancestry and that genetic ancestry, you know, we can cluster individuals, but really genetic ancestry is a quantitative measurement. We, we don't, we shouldn't be at least saying that one person is African-American and another person is Caucasian because more than likely they both are admixed and fall somewhere on the scale between two extremes, right? And I will say, I think that that's both a social, a political, and a scientific thing kind of all coming together. And so the sequencing of the Human Genome Project, I think, furthered how we think about genetic ancestry instead of race. But unfortunately, the terms in which we use, a lot of this is connected to how we collect the data. That kind of thing, it was still there. The confusion is still there, even among scientists. Even though we know and knew then that race was a social construct, we still misused race in a lot of our analyses instead of leaning on genetic ancestry as a quantitative measurement. And so you see that now, you don't really see any scientists kind of like saying, oh, the race was this, you know, everyone talks about genetic ancestry, which is the correct way that we should be talking about this. Really important there. And I was going to ask you, like, what do you wish would shift? Like, what can we shift in our language and our dialogue? And also, I just have a social question for you in that it is part of biography. Like, we are attached to certain aspects of where we come from, familial, belonging. How do we put that into context with the conversation we're having about genetic ancestry? How do we make room for both the feeling state and the reality of the science? I mean, before we can even understand the interaction of the social constructs and the impact that it has and biology, we need to kind of like separate them first so we know that what we're measuring. So I think what a lot of confusion is, and even in the early stages of my career, I was always looking for genetic determinants that could be explained by genetic ancestry. One thing that I did not know or was not considering at the time was that while race is not real, it does very much so have real consequences. And those consequences are now what we call the social determinants of health, right? And so I had no idea about that. So 
you know, a lot of the work that I was doing, making these correlations with the genome and genetic ancestry in a given phenotype could have all been confounded by these social determinants of health that I wasn't even measuring. And they could all have been confounded by what I'm calling genetic ancestry because genetic ancestry is directly associated with social determinants of health. And so I did not know that at the time. And I like a lot of early research papers that were doing this work also didn't measure this stuff. Because how do we measure the social determinants of health? You know, that field is really just kind of blossoming now. And as it does blossom and we are able to measure these things and say, okay, these are the social determinants of health. And these are the social determinants of health that are affected by capitalism, racism, sexism, ageism, you know, ableism. There's so many things, right? And so once we can measure and kind of separate that from biology, then we can start to ask the question, well, how are these two interacting and how can we come up with a total picture or what we kind of call now precision medicine that is unique to each individual? That's where I hope, and I think the field is going there. I'm excited about that part. And I think what's going to happen next, and you know, I have some colleagues who are doing this work, is also talking about like, how should we talk about gender? We're talking about, you know, race and we're getting there. Gender is going to be a whole nother mountain to climb, right? Because especially as geneticists, we think about, we misconstrue gender with chromosomal sex, right? So gender is the social construct, chromosomal sex is the genetics term, right? And so making sure that those two things are not kind of conflated and just similar to race, they have been in the entire history of the field. And so as we're becoming more conscious of the social determinants and what they are, and it's a learning process, we're all learning, we're going to be able to tease out these things. I have chills, Dr. Jeff, like, yes, 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 to everything you're saying. And the way that the field and the research that you're doing intersects with the work that I do as a functional medicine nutritionist with the realm of precision medicine, with really being able to work at the care level for the individual and understanding their social determinants of health and how those have impacted their body and their physiology and that not being their genes, but those being the determinants that have led them to the state that they are in today and potentially suffering. So I love what you're talking about. Speaking of mountains, I feel like we just got to the first base camp and I would love to continue the conversation with you at another time. Thank you for sharing so much of your brilliance with us today. Oh, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. 
That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.